0: Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. Thanks for listening. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, this is a Tuesday podcast, which means it's me and Hugo talking about uh, various things in the world that we find particularly interesting, and hopefully you do too. So, Hugo, thanks for joining us. Welcome back.
1: Yep, yeah, nice to hear from you, Bradley. Uh, it's Monday morning as we're talking about this, and our I guess our plan this week is to start with like a big kind of I don't know juicy but big tech topic um, because we haven't. Done quite that in the last couple of weeks. So the thing we we're going to talk about was Katera, um, which is this sort of massive kind of construction industry startup that uh, recently went belly up. Um, and that's a company that you had seen kind of early on uh, several years ago when they were raising um, when they were raising money. Tell me about well, first of all, just tell me about what the what the company is and, and what they do and, and what your interaction.
0: So- and to be clear, despite uh, me sitting here making pronouncements about them, it might be pronounced katara and I'm, oh, not really? sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know why I'm saying that was because I heard someone say that. Well, the question is, should we start the podcast over and say it right? But I, I feel like um,
1: if, you're, if you're a construction company and you have Terra in there, that's because Terra is – anyway. Let me see if I could – no. Katera, we were right. That's the important thing to settle. Katera. Katera sounds much better. Go ahead.
0: What are they? So, it was a tech company in the construction industry. And the idea is building housing, building office buildings is an incredibly uh inefficient, expensive process especially in cities. And if you could find ways to streamline a lot of the inefficiencies, you could do it a lot more cost-effectively and therefore improve the margins uh, significantly. And the main areas would be one, building materials itself, and their thought was um, things could be produced in a factory in a modular way and then kind of put together like a Lego set, um, and that's a lot easier than trying to build everything custom all the time. Um, And two, unionization. If if you can automate as many of the functions as possible and use workers that are not in the different building trades unions, um, you could save a lot of money. So from an... Kind of common sense standpoint, it, it it made a lot of sense, right? It's it's a giant industry. It is clearly inefficient. Um, there has to be a way to do it better. Um, so therefore, someone who uh, came up with that way and has the wherewithal to actually implement it, to me, initially made a, a lot of sense. So I I don't think it was a bad idea. And what point did did you
1: interact with them? Was it was it sometime after their founding or were they they
0: pretty early on i think in their existence it's probably 2016 or something like that um and 2017 and it was you know we had they'd already been around long enough that that our investing didn't make sense they were too late stage for that Um, but i did like the idea and i thought oh maybe we, we can handle their politics for them and uh be there.
1: What were their political challenges? Like, what kind of thing did they need? The unions, you know,
0: they were basically the, the building trades in every single city would would want to fight their existence.
1: Did they take out those big inflatable rats and, like, put them on they the job? That. Yeah,
0: I mean, Katero was an existential threat to the building trades, just like charter schools are an existential threat to the teachers' unions. Right. And so lot no shortage of political problems for us to help with. And so um, we talked, we reached out, we talked to them. And it was one of those calls where you knew within 10 minutes that this company was going to fail. I would have shorted them if I could. And the reason why is that the people that they had running at least kind of the government politics media part of the company were awful. I mean, I'm sure they're lovely people, but just they came from the Gates Foundation. They were total bureaucrats. They didn't really understand politics at all, but because they probably went to Yale or something like that. They felt like they understood everything really well. Um, They wanted to have an... I love the
1: way, just just an aside here, Brad, I love the way you talk about the Ivy League as if you didn't go to an Ivy League
0: school. I I succeeded despite going to an Ivy League school. (laughs) And they wanted this whole RFP process, and it basically was all of the wrong instincts around government and politics. Um, They didn't seem to have any idea what they were in store for politically, what the unions could do to them, how to handle it. Um, they seem like they were way too. Uh, if I'm being nice, that they were way too good. Or if I'm being less nice, way too prissy um, to be able to like get their hands dirty and fight a union in the city council night fight. Um, and it was just very clear. I mean, Matt and I were on the call with it together, and we were texting during the call saying these guys are are gone. Or Um, and, and basically my hope was for them that the rest of their company was, was better run and more cognizant of the real world, um, than their political team was. And the answer, unfortunately is they weren't, um, it would turn out to be fairly clueless across the board. They had real leadership.
1: So in that kind of situation you have, um, do you ever have that where that's actually an opportunity for you where you see they're so clueless, you're like, oh my God, they really need us. We need to like, that's how you're getting paid. Right.
0: So if we're investing out of the fund, no, that's we should steer as far clear as possible. Or if we're working for them, but taking equity for our work, um, same thing. You know, you don't want to if you're taking equity, you're making a bet on the company uh and they were clearly not worth making a bet on um the third would be if they were paying you in cash would you care in theory you shouldn't care because as long as you're doing good work for them and, and the you know they're paying your invoices what's the difference but in reality it's no fun to work for a company that you know doesn't get it and that you know is going to fail Um, and you're just trying to, my
1: question is a little different though. I don't mean, I don't mean like, uh, I mean like, wow, if we can, if we can sort of totally revamp their sort of governmental political approach, like get rid of these people or, or, or really teach them how to do their jobs. Um, we could make something successful out of it.
0: Well, but look, only if the rest of the company had a different mentality than that political team, right? If it was, This is a great company with great leadership, and they totally get it. They're just naive about this one thing, and we can fix it? Sure. But if the rest of the leadership was just as clueless as their political people, then no, Uh, and I think the company's failure proved that the rest of the company was as clueless. Right.
1: So now you have this situation where this—I mean, so—so so, uh, uh, SoftBank was behind this. I mean, there their losses in the hundreds of millions of dollars on this, probably billions. Um, the uh, but the but the opportunity is still there, right? The 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 this gigantic industry with massive inefficiencies, um, a, a kind of notion of how it can be done differently. Um, How soon will we see another big bet in this space, do you think?
0: It's a good question. Um, Probably not a really big bet for a little while because, you know, there's a lot of signal following in the venture capital world. And So after a fund like SoftBank takes a bath on something like this, um, they then are, you know, it, it deters other people from wanting to repeat the same mistake. So it may be a little while, but ultimately, will construction be modernized, digitized, made more efficient? Yeah, Absolutely you know, for, for sure. Um, look, even our, our house upstate, most of it was built in a factory in New Hampshire and then moved down to upstate New York, uh, and installed on site. And, you know, I don't know that it saved us any money, but it definitely made it work faster. Um, and it was quality was great, you know? Uh, so turns out that lasers can cut things a lot better than human beings can. Um, so, um, so yeah, this, this will still happen and come around, but I would say I would be very unlikely to invest in a construction tech startup um, because, you know, what what you want is a company that um, is basically operates in a fully digital way. And if they gain traction, it can scale very, very quickly um, without massive expense. Right. And the construction world is as real life as it gets. And so uh, the, the notion that, they can do better than kind of a, a consumer software company where, where someone gets into something like TikTok and then it just explodes in value or Discord or Clubhouse or something like that. To, to me, those businesses are so much more scalable at so much less cost that um, there are some, some funds that are willing to really, you know, get involved in, in heavily operational capital intensive businesses. Um, but I think generally speaking, you, you avoid those more than you embrace them. Where,
1: where is um, SoftBank these days as you see it? Are they, I mean, you know, it, it seemed like uh, with WeWork and everything, they were really on the ropes and there was all this kind of like, um, all this terrible press. They, they seem to have sort of pulled out
0: of that, I guess, the, the value of a lot of their other things have increased. Like what- They got a lot, a lot wrong and a lot right. So they got a lot of negative attention for Uber, for WeWork, for OYO, for WAG, for Katera. And those are a bunch of big swings and misses. But keep in mind, you know, a really successful venture capital fund is, is get, hitting a home run one out of every three times, right? Uh, now, it's got to be a, a not, not a, a single. It's got to be a home run. But if you're hitting home runs one out of three times, the math works just fine in venture. And so um, it is totally possible that SoftBank is, is actually doing that and executing, but because the numbers are so big, every failure is so magnified that it feels like, Oh my God, these guys must be really struggling or losing their shirts. They just lost 2 billion here and 3 billion there. But you know, if they made 12 other bets, they put in a billion and they're at a seven X on it. Um, that'll outweigh it significantly. So I don't know that they're not succeeding or can't succeed. Um, I just think that the scale at which they're doing it changes, it distorts our perception of of the whole thing.
1: So, um, one just sort of conceptual question on this, like, I guess it was kind of a vogue a few years ago, this, this sort of cult of failure in Silicon Valley where, you know, you didn't really know who you were until you'd gone out there and fuck something up. And, um, and, and that was an important part of like the kind of entrepreneurial uh, training. Um, do you, wh- where does your perspective on the, 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 cult of failure? Is this something you believe in? Is it, is it sort of overblown? Is it, is it uh, a trend that's passed.
0: It's a little overblown. I mean, look, it, it, it's still better to, to succeed than to fail, right? I don't really know a world where how losing a lot of people's money and wasting a couple of years of your life is better than succeeding at something. But at the same time, are there potentially valuable lessons that a founder could learn in failure that would make you want to then back them the next time? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it depends on on why you failed, right? If it's you made a big bet on something and the bet just didn't quite pan out the right way, but you had a really big creative idea and you executed it properly, then that may be someone who you absolutely want to back in their next venture or in the next company. Um, or, but it's like the, fa- the founders of Katerra, if it was a question of them fundamentally not understanding the challenges that they were facing um, and, and really just having a, a too loose of a grasp on reality then, you know, no, you wouldn't want to. So it really depends on why they think.
1: Now, uh, what's what's a failure of yours, like in the, in the business world, that you sort of feel was valuable to you, like that you could kind of carry around and think like, that was good for me to have gone through? Is there one?
0: Yeah, well, look, there's a bunch on the political side, right? Um, like, for example, when I launched New York City Deserves Better as an effort to get rid of Bill de Blasio, uh, we obviously did not get rid of him. Um, you know, I spent time, I spent money, I spent political capital. Um, I did it for the right reasons, which is he's a really terrible mayor and nobody else was standing up and doing anything about it. So I did. Um, but at the same time, we failed to get rid of him. So that was ultimately wasted time and effort. Now, again, I don't regret doing the right thing, uh, for something I believe in, um, but it was still a failure. Um, look, the first venture capital fund I tried to raise was a failure. Um, it was with two other people uh, as my partners. Um, the idea was that it would, it would be really backed heavily by Mike Bloomberg. Um, Mike ultimately decided not to invest in that fund. And the other two partners dropped out. Um, and then, you know, I met Jordan. Jordan and I met, and, and obviously we kept going and, and succeeded. Uh, and now I'm very glad that it worked out the way it did because we achieved it on our own, um, you know, without without mike's help um and rather than having two equal partners uh, i have jordan um so it worked out better for me in, in multiple ways um but it but it was born out of a failure
1: do you think mike considers it a mistake not to have um not to have backed you in that first venture
0: i don't i mean the numbers are so small for him you know when you're worth 60 billion dollars but let's say he had invested 20 million dollars in our first fund and that would now based on our, our you know be worth call it i don't say it's worth 100 million um does he really care about 80 million dollars no so, so I, I don't I don't think he loses any sleep over it.
1: And your relationship with him survived that in, in a way that yeah fit. for
0: sure. I mean, I have to not only that he was our main reference uh, with other investors for when Jordan and I did our fund. Um, he was very happy to talk to people and make the case. Um, but we were for him too new, too small. Strategy was too risky. You know, we, we proved it out obviously, and it's it's gone well. Um, but yeah, you know, I also think that with Mike. Uh, to a certain extent, he kind of silos people into the world that he knows them. I was his campaign manager. I was a political guy. I wasn't his, you know, investment guy. And so I think that for him, it was harder to make that mental leap. And by the way, it was hard for a lot of people. It took Jordan and I me mean, two years to raise our first fund because people saw me as this political guy, or even as the Uber guy. But the notion that you would then take outside capital and be able to use that political insight to invest in startups. Um, that were really early stage and succeed with it, I think was still a very open question, you know, for a long time. We've, we've I like to think since answered that question, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it wasn't just my,
1: we're going to switch topics now into sort of politics with a capital P and uh, the New York city mayor's race voting has started in the primary. Um, did you vote already?
0: I can't vote. I'm an independent. Oh my God.
1: Can't vote for your own candidate. That's right. Disenfranchised. Does it make sense to be an independent in New York City, though, and not
0: be able to vote in the Democratic primary? It does not make sense. But I fundamentally believe both parties are destructive, wildly corrupt entities. Um, and the idea of aligning with something I believe to be completely corrupt and inept, I just can't do. And if we lose by one vote, I will really feel like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, let's hope you don't. So the 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 in in the in the notes you made for me for this, uh, Bradley. By the way, um, made some incredibly good notes. We should almost put them online. Um, for the, uh, uh, I, I encourage you to do this every week, Bradley. This was this was like you basically did my job for me. I really appreciate it. Um, you, it this this is under the heading: Did progressives screw up the mayoral race? So I'm going to guess that the answer to this question is yes. Um, but, but why don't you even explain why, why, why this is the question? So
0: this was a, an article in The Atlantic um, that they basically asked that question, and, and I read it and, and agreed with it and sent it over to you. And, you know, New York City is kind of a hotbed of, of the Democratic Socialist movement. Um, AOC kind of in some ways the most prominent member of that movement.
1: I mean, in some ways she is the most prominent
0: member, no? Yeah, represents Queens and the Bronx. Um, they've had a lot of uh, political wins in state Senate races, uh, in congressional primaries. And so the view was, OK, now they get to elect a mayor, um, and that seems extremely unlikely to happen. Maya Wiley, of the three progressive candidates, is the best position to still succeed, but it would take a, a real change from where the voters are right now for her to do so. Um, so they had Scott Stringer, the controller, they had Maya Wiley, uh, the former counsel for Bill de Blasio and Diane Morales, a a nonprofit executive, uh, all very, very left wing, all parroting the AOC, DSA, talking points at every turn. And yet uh, it seems highly likely that the winner will be a moderate, whether it's Yang or Adams or Garcia. So the question is, where did they go wrong? How did they blow it um, in the nation's biggest city and probably the world's most important city? Um, I think there are a few reasons. By the way, number one, I, I'm glad that they blew it um, because I don't believe in a lot of the things in the progressive agenda. Um, two, uh, I hope they're not listening to this because I'm not particularly interested in giving them any advice on how to improve. The good <laughs> news is because I am so impure, there's a zero percent chance that they are listening to this, so we don't we can we can talk talk freely here. I love um,
1: I love the idea that that AOC is like secretly listening to your podcast, though I think yeah, that would I be think amazing. Zero point zero zero. Hi AOC, if you're out there, hi.
0: Yeah, she's, she's not listening. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, look, and also in the controllers race, they had their candidate, Brad Lander, I think is, is not likely to win in the Manhattan D.A.'s race. They had a couple of super progressive candidates also not likely to win. So there's a decent shot that moderates uh, sweep this election. So the question is, where did they go wrong? I, mean, I think there's two fundamental problems that if I were advising that movement and if I cared about them, that I would try to fix. No, number one is they've been around for a little while now right? Their coming out party was kind of the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2015, 2016 for president against Hillary. So it's been five, six years um, since this movement was born. I don't know what they could point to in terms of actual accomplishments, right? There's very little in the way of legislation uh, that um, has A, been implemented and then B, succeeded where actual policy, not just the policies have changed, but the world has improved as a result of their ideas. Uh, There are certainly some state legislatures that have become more progressive and have passed laws. But if you look at New York, for example, the most prominent thing they did was that they got rid of bail. And they said that, you know, everyone could basically go free no matter what you're arrested for um, until you stood trial and if you were convicted. Um, And there has been a massive spike in crime in New York as a result of it. So, you know, the, the most high profile actual piece of legislation has resulted in people losing their lives, people being uh, beaten, robbed, stabbed, so many other things. So, um, their most, their biggest thing has been an abject fail. Also,
1: it should be added, you know, despite the, the, uh, you know, despite the sort of upper middle-class concern about crime, I mean, the, the victims of those crimes are almost, you know, entirely, um, poor and minority. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's interesting to see the, the, the concern about crime that a lot of wealthy people in New York have when it, it actually has very little
0: impact on their lives even now. Right. But there, there's ultimately nothing that they can really point to to say, we elected our people, we passed legislation, this is the new policy, and here are the positive um, outputs. And here's how the world is a better place. I really can't think of anything. So number one, um, at a certain point, you have to accomplish things. You, you can't just forever exist on promise, and potential as much as the press would like that if you could. Um, And the second is, you know, politics, in my view, is a a business of addition, right? You need to find people who are like-minded enough to you on on any particular issue that you can build a coalition, get enough votes to pass something, and then then implement it. And, you know, when all you're doing all day is administering purity tests and attacking people on Twitter and talking how evil everyone is... Um, You're not adding anything. You're just driving people away. Like I'm a pretty good example here, right? Even though I'm an independent and I don't like either party, 90% of the money I give to candidates are Democratic candidates, and it's a significant amount of money. um, 90% of my votes are for Democratic candidates. Um, The work that I do philanthropically is either about expanding access to voting through mobile voting or expanding access to food for uh, poor people through through our hunger initiatives. Um, Those are both pretty progressive ideas. Uh, I should be someone that the left should say, hey, we're not going to agree with him on everything. He likes tech and he likes big business and he likes law enforcement. And therefore, we have some real points of disagreement. But there are also some real areas where we agree. And this is someone with money and uh, platform and resources and infrastructure. And if we could co-opt all of that into the things where we do agree, we'd be far more likely to succeed. Uh, That would be the smart play. But instead," Um, anyone who does not agree with them on 100% of their issues is the devil and the enemy. And instead, you have me looking to not only not work with them, but see where I can screw them over however I can, simply because of the way that I've been treated by them, right? I mean, they even of the three mayoral candidates, they've turned on two of them. You know, Scott Stringer was uh, accused of sexual harassment, and the minute he was, every progressive who had endorsed him dumped him. Um, and, you know, regardless of whether he did it or not, or regardless of whether he was the best position candidate to win and implement their ideas or not, he failed the purity test and he was gone. Diane Morales, her own campaign turned on her. They, they wanted to form a formal union um, to represent their views in the campaign. Uh, and she refused and they all quit. Uh, and ultimately, her entire campaign collapsed as a result. Now, she wasn't going to win either way. But two of the three progressive candidates ended up being victims of the progressive movement because they eat their own. So you have this this movement with a lot of energy, a lot of ideas, and very little actual track record of success. Um, and when the moment passes for them, as all moments do, and you go back and do the postmortem, I think what you're going to find is it was so badly run uh, and run in such a non-strategic way that they squandered their opportunity.
1: Um, do you think that... Uh... Maybe this this will be a turning point for them,
0: given that given the the all these things you've laid out, the the total failure. Um, no, I, I think they will point more fingers than ever, find more people to blame than ever, um, and, and if anything, uh, probably double down on what isn't working. Right.
1: Here's a question I have for you. I, you know, outside of outside of talking to you and 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 some of the other people at Tusk, I've been surprised how how little people are animated by the New York city mayor's race, you know, like
0: well, like, early, early voting started Saturday and turnout was terrible. So you're absolutely right. I, I just, I, I, it's funny because so many people like the whole, the whole last,
1: you know, 18 months in New York have obviously been this, you know, kind of historic crisis. Um, and, you know, and people, it's, it's not that everyone gave up on New York city. I mean, if anything, like people feel uh, I, most people I know are, Um, you know, spending more time in the city than ever and, you know, feel very passionate about it. But that doesn't
0: translate into any sort of political um, passion. I mean, the the few things. One, you know, Bill de Blasio, while being a bad mayor, is not a villain in the way that Donald Trump is. So the kind of passion we saw around the presidential race um, just doesn't really exist locally. No one cares enough about Bill de Blasio one way or the other to get that animated about it. But two, you know, the world has changed in in massive ways and politics hasn't changed with it, right? I mean, the listeners are sick of hearing me talk about mobile voting, but we (laughs) went from a world of of civic institutions, you know, like the church, like our community, Uh, you trusted higher ed, you trusted the banks, you trusted the government, and therefore you were engaged in these processes to uh, a disintermediated world where people are very, very individualistic now and their community is their phone. And life moved online, but politics did not, at least when it comes to voting. And as a result, um, people don't participate in the process. If you could vote on your phone, turnout would be exponentially higher, I believe, um, and you would get far better outcomes. But until you do that, you're going to still have the same problem of low turnout. You're still going to have the same problem uh, of the incentives for elected officials to, to be pure and accomplish nothing. Um, and as a result, you know, we're worse off for it. So yeah, it's, it's never going to change until we can vote on our phones.
1: Um, uh, we have a couple of notebook items we're going to get to, but I want to read you a little tweet. I know you don't spend a lot of time on Twitter or really any at all anymore. Um, but there was a good one that I liked. I think it was just some undergraduate, uh, somewhere, but he had a, he had a tweet said, if I was running for president, I would require all of my staffers to make their lock screen say, "The median voter is a fifty-year-old white person who did not go to college and watches four hours of television a day."
0: You know, it, I, and I think the Biden campaign and the general election probably had something along those lines on their on their lock screen, home screen, whatever that's called. But overall, the problem is, yeah, that's that's true in a macro stance, but it's not true in terms of getting through the primary, right? Um, turnout in primaries is, is generally pretty low, higher in presidential elections than others, but still pretty low. And the voters tend to be not a fifty-year-old moderate, un- uneducated white guy watching four hours of TV. It's not Archie Bunker. Um, it's it's someone who is you know far more progressive and, and engaged, um, and, and far less white. So you know if you are a Republican candidate for office, that's probably a very very good. Box screen message. If you're a Democratic candidate, you got to get through the primary to get to the general. Now, look, Joe Biden did it perfectly. He was just kind of liberal enough that to when COVID hit to be the logical choice to, to win in the primary. Um, and then, you know, just moderate and conservative enough uh, to beat Trump in the general election. But it's, you know, again, if, if, we, if we had multiple parties, uh, I think that could be different. If we had mobile voting, I think that could be different. But for as long as we have these very targeted low turnout primaries, uh, that lock screen message probably should not be on there.
1: Um, Okay. So these two, these two notebook items, um, for those who uh, listened last week, Bradley has been engaged uh, with his daughter's camp, actually also my daughter's camp, on an issue of whether he needs to come pick her up every two weeks um, and take her away from camp for two days, which they had originally claimed was a was a state law um, in the state of Maryland. A little bit of research by Bradley showed that that was not the case. I should add that the reason Bradley wants to do this is because this is, what, a five-hour drive, four and a half-hour drive from your house? Yep. And it would be 30 hours of driving back and forth. Uh, every two weeks, or no, thirty over the course of summer. I'm sorry, pull this off. So he was looking for alternatives. Uh, wh- where does this uh, where does this state of play exist now? What what were you able to work out with the camp? Uh, I, I,
0: think we, I think we might have worked it out. So um, the team here looked into the um, situation, and you know, so the camp told me, look, you know, we don't want to make you come here every two weeks either, but. Maryland law requires it. Our hands are tied. It's not up to us. We, we wish we didn't have to do this. And so my initial thought, uh, for those of you who know who were listening last week, was, well, what if we change the law, right? And so Hugh and I had a conversation about it, uh, agreed it was a good idea, and I reached out to the camp director and said, hey, I'm going to try to change this law. Do you mind? Didn't hear back from him, so I told my team, look into this thing. And when they came back to me, it was not um, – You know, here's how we change the law, or we won't be able to change the law. It was there is no law. Um, There's no Maryland rule whatsoever saying that uh, camps have to be vacated every two weeks uh, for deep cleaning. And so I emailed the camp and said, Great news whatever law you guys thought you had to comply with is not in effect. So don't worry about it. We're good to go. And then the director, they did not take this as great news. No, no. I, I think it <laughs> turned out to not be what they wanted to hear. Cause he wrote back and said, Oh no, no, it's not a state law. We never said that it, it's, it's purely uh, our own internal policy. Um, and it's better for us. And I said, well, you did say it. And then I forwarded them the email where they said it very clearly And so seeing that they were kind of stuck in a pickle here, what it turned out was I think initially they thought um, that they would need to do it to be compliant. And they were trying to come up with different ways to keep get the camp back open and running and show parents that they were, you know, really responsible about COVID and taking it seriously. And that was sort of the idea behind the every two week deep clean. Obviously, we've all learned since then that COVID is transmitted uh airborne and and not through surfaces. So deep cleaning the camp wouldn't actually accomplish anything. Um and by the way, this is a camp where they sleep in tents, so I don't know how much you're gonna really be able to clean anyway. Um, and so also like no real plumbing, right? Don't they have like outdoors? Yeah, right, Exactly. Yeah. So I, as a result, the science behind it had been disproved. Um but the camp in in trying to come up with ways to reassure parents built their entire summer schedule around this notion of every two weeks, um, the campers leave. And most of the employees of the camp are kids, right? They're college students because camps don't pay well at all, they can't. Um, And so you're relying on 17, 18, 20 year olds who are not the most reliable employees most of the time. And so once you have the schedule set with all of them, going back and changing all of it is a nightmare, right? You could end up losing the people that you brought in and then you can't run the camp because you don't have enough personnel. And so clearly they were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place where they were no longer required to do this, or maybe never really were, but they also had, had set their schedules in stone and couldn't really change it at that point.
1: Now I'm going I'm to have to stop you there, Bradley, because um, I, I think we want to save the rest of this excellent material for this um, podcast. We're going to do just a podcast series, just on Bradley's summer camp. Um, <laughs> so we're, gonna yeah. have a separate, we're launching a separate podcast from that. And, exactly. Uh, but wait, I want to, I want to, I want to wrap this up. I have two quick questions. Um, I want you to answer. One, um, how does all this sit with Abby? That's number one. Don't answer yet. Number two is if you can sum up for our listeners um, the 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 lesson in all of this um, in in two yeah. or three sentences or less, please. So please she answer both she
0: those. was fine. I mean, she is you know turning fifteen, very independent, uh, wants no part of us. In, in fact, we were told over the weekend that she and her boyfriend. Are going to go to Six Flags by themselves uh, t- tomorrow, uh, and we said, oh, "How do you get there?" And she said, "The subway." It's in southern New Jersey. The subway doesn't uh, go there. Yeah, um, yeah. And we've <laughs> since been working with with them to figure out, you know, how to make it happen. Um, but she's very independent, so. Uh, I don't think she was eager to have to sort of leave every two weeks to hang out with us. So when I told her she was perfectly fine with it at one week and her grandparents are already scheduled to come anyway, that's going to happen. you know, it it won't be every two, she won't be able to stay there the entire time, but. um, No,
1: but my question is slightly, or my interest is slightly different. Does, is she embarrassed that her dad has like raised this ruckus with the camp director?
0: It didn't seem like it, Uh, but you know, I think the amount of thought she gives to anything that I say or do is is so infinitesimal. Um, <laughs> I think that it was more that she just wanted me to stop talking as quickly as possible.
1: Um, lessons for lessons for, for for listeners on on what the camp saga reveals to to them about the ways of the world.
0: And the the lesson here, I think, it's actually an important one, which is. You have agency. You have some control over your your environment. You don't just have to accept that because something someone tells you it's always been this way or no one will want to do what you want to do or this is the law and you can't do anything about it or you can't fight City Hall. That's bullshit. You, you can do all of those things. Um, it's not easy. This particular one was easy because – the stakes were extremely low and the parties involved were all very rational and reasonable. So we resolved it pretty amicably and quickly. Um, but you can ultimately change anything. That's the, the course of human history, right? Otherwise, you know, we'd still be living within, with as serfs and fiefdoms or whatever. Um, so you, if you can read a situation properly, understand the politics behind it, understand the reasoning behind it, understand why all the different players in the situation want what it is that they want and what they need you could then figure out how do i get what i want without it being a loss for everybody else or if it has to be lost for for everyone else how do i change the zeitgeist around this so that ultimately the situation favors me in my view rather than the status quo Um, that's achievable like if you take mobile voting as an example you know it went from not existing at all and being totally opposed by the security cybersecurity community to now 20 different jurisdictions across seven different states have done it we've now brought in some of the, our critics in the cybersecurity community to help us build our own mobile voting technology and i do think that hopefully by 2028 um, it will become the norm for how we vote and so you know that's just one example but I, it's not like i have this amazing you know magic wand or or a platform where i can just pronounce things and they happen It's figuring out the situation, understanding what people need, understanding who might be for this and why, and slowly building. It's building a movement, building technology, building a consensus. Building Um, a better summer for Bradley Tusk. Yeah, building three fewer drives. It's a lot of work. Um, It could be a lot of money. Um, But ultimately, if you choose to not change something in your world, most of the time, it's because you're choosing not to expend the effort to do so. Um, not because it can't be changed.
1: We're gonna quick. We're gonna end here with the summer movies you saw in the Heights over the weekend. Yeah. Um, I, I think I asked for a two or three sentence summary of the last answer, and I think you went on for about two or three pages. So um,
0: let's do three, two or three sentences on in the Heights. I'll, I'll, I'll go little shorter. If if you like musical movies, it's a like four and a half stars. Um, if you don't, it's still pretty good, like two and a half to three stars. I would say. If you're just dying to go back to the movie theater and you need something, and this is the least inane option, um, go see it. And you do like uh, movie music. Yeah, theater. I didn't like this one quite as much as I liked, like Moulin Rouge, for example. Um, but I thought it was really good. And if, if you like Hamilton, it's similar in many ways. Different story, less interesting story, in, in my view. Um, but but the way that they sing and talk is is very very similar. And so, you know, I suspect that um, Hamilton fans will enjoy this.
1: All right, Bradley, till next week. All right. Thanks, Hugo.